Hi, and welcome, or should I say welcome back, to the Essex Court Chambers podcast series 10 in 10. Welcome back because, for those of you who are paying attention, late last year, you will recall that episode 8 had to be deferred because on the day we were due to record it, the Supreme Court gave permission in the case of Financial Conduct Authority and Arch and others. So we are back now for episode 8, FCA and Arch, in light of the Supreme Court decision which came out in mid-January after a three-day hearing in the Supreme Court last November. I am pleased to be joined for this podcast episode by James Collins, QC, and Jeremy Breyer. Jeremy was junior counsel in FCA and Arch, acting for Arch, the insurers, being led by John Lockie from Chambers at both levels, the Divisional Court and in the Supreme Court. Now, my guests, James Collins is a silk at Essex Court Chambers, He is described in the legal directories as one of the most user-friendly QCs you could ever want to work with. He's hands-on, has a great manner with judges, he's calm, very persuasive, and is described as a super advocate. Jeremy Breyer, a senior junior, a specialist in arbitration as well as insurance law, he is knocking on the door of silk. The legal directories describe him as articulate, hardworking, affable, and with a first-rate brain. Jeremy, as some of you may know, also appears regularly as a legal commentator on the BBC and Sky News. Now, let's turn to FCA and Arch. In some ways, this might be described as the ultimate lockdown litigation because it concerned business interruption insurance coverage caused by the pandemic and the government restrictions imposed to deal with the pandemic. Let's start, James, by telling us something about the background to the case. Everyone will have their own recollection of how the events unfolded last spring and the impact it had on them. But from a factual and legal perspective, there were a number of key events. So far as the disease in this country was concerned, uh, it was on the 31st of January that the chief medical officer confirmed that two patients had tested positive for COVID-19 in England. The first case was then confirmed in Northern Ireland on the 27th of February. Wales the 28th of February and in Scotland on the 1st of March. And the first death occurred on the 2nd of March and was publicly announced on the 5th. Now, so far as the government's response to this is concerned, the first step was taken on the 10th of February when the health protection regulations were made. And in broad terms, Those regulations provided for the detention and screening of persons reasonably suspected to have been infected or contaminated with the virus, but they did not seek to restrict the ability of any business to operate. Then on the 4th of March, when things were obviously becoming a bit worse, the UK government published guidance uh, called the Coronavirus COVID-19 What is Social Distancing Guidance. But again, it didn't impose any restrictions at that stage. The next significant event was probably the following day on the 5th of March, when COVID-19 was made a notifiable disease. The next significant event was on the 5th of March, uh, when COVID-19 was made a notifiable disease. And then on the 16th of March, the government published guidance, and the Prime Minister made a statement advising people to stop non-essential contact and unnecessary travel. They should work from home where possible and avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other social venues. And a similar but more strongly worded statement was made two days later. But still at that stage, it was just guidance, um, much of it coming from the Prime Minister's mouth. And it wasn't until the 20th through the 26th of March 
but the guidance was upgraded to enforceable direction. Now, it was on the 20th of March that the Prime Minister announced that across the UK, various venues such as cafes, pubs, bars, restaurants, gyms, cinemas, etc., were being told to close as soon as they reasonably could and that they could not open the following day. And it was on the following day, on the 21st of March, that this first became law in the health protection regulation of that date. And then on the 26th of March, the 21st of March regulation was largely replaced by a new health protection regulation, which imposed even more extensive restrictions. Now, these developments had a catastrophic effect on a large number of businesses. Businesses such as cafes and restaurants had to close or cease selling any food or drink for consumption on the premises. They could still do takeaways, but they weren't allowed to let people in. Businesses such as cinemas, theatres, nightclubs, gyms and leisure centres had to close completely. And retailers, apart from food retailers and a few others, were not allowed to let people into their shops. Anyway, the list goes on. But fortunately for some, some of them had business interruption insurance. Now, often that is tacked onto property damage insurance. So, for example, if a factory is flooded, the insurance covers not just the cost of remediation, but also the loss that is suffered as a result of not being able to make biscuits for three months. Uh, but it can, and in the policies at issue in these proceedings, potentially did provide cover for business interruption that was independent of any property damage. Now, that cover fell broadly into three categories. Some policies contained disease clauses, which provided cover for business interruption losses resulting from the occurrence of a notifiable disease at or within a specified distance of the business premises. Some contained prevention of access clauses, which provided cover for business interruption losses resulting from public authority intervention, preventing or hindering access to or use of the business premises. And some of them contained hybrid clauses, which combined the main elements of the disease and prevention of access clauses. Now, what was in dispute was how these various clauses responded to the losses suffered as a result of the developments that I've just summarised. Now, in order to get this before the courts, the parties invoked what's known as the test case procedure. Could you tell us how that works, Jeremy? Yes, there's a very um, unique mechanism uh, that, that has not been used before, where essentially what was happening was all sorts of different issues were arising. Insurers were facing a number of claims from different policyholders under all different policies, and they wanted to get some degree of certainty about what to do. So the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, as a conduct regulator of the insurers, I suppose would have had a choice to either adopt this kind of test case approach that I'm going to tell you about, or perhaps to allow a few individual cases to proceed to a full trial or hearing on those specific cases. It didn't go down that route. It considered that the best thing to do would be to select a representative sample of terms in the market. So terms of policies that were broadly reflective of the policies, the business interruption policies that were the subject of claims and the subject of question marks, I should say, and then apply to those uh, terms and those policies a set of agreed facts and a set of assumed facts um, about 
whether those policies can establish the necessary causal link between the losses sustained by the policyholders and any relevant peril. So essentially, uh, the agreed facts were going to be the, the facts necessary to resolve the disputed issues, which were kind of the chron- chronological facts, the nature and dates of the steps taken, the kind of steps and kind of regulations that James has just told us about. The assumed facts were going to be an appropriate set of illustrative factual assumptions, um, such as um, specific businesses in different categories of business and how certain regulations had affected them. And the idea of this test case was essentially to take policy samples and apply them to certain assumed factual scenarios in the light of the agreed facts. Now, there was quite a long sort of, if I can use this phrase, sifting process uh, that occurred where the FCA, in conjunction with different insurers, looked at, sifted through various different policies to try to work out which would be the best ones to be subject of the test case um, and, and, and for the court to essentially give its guidance on. Um, at all times, the FCA considered that it had an interest in the resolution of the uncertainty in the market because it was the market regulator of insurers in the United Kingdom. And it wanted to make sure that insurers were acting in a way that was compatible with its own strategic objective to ensure that the relative markets functioned well and to advance its operational um, objectives. The FCA had an obligation then to assess insurers to make sure they were complying and to ensure certainty uh, in the market. That was the point of this. Now, um, the, the legal mechanism for this to all happen was the financial markets test case scheme, which was actually provided for in the CPR already, but I don't believe it had ever been used before. Essentially, to cut a fairly long story short, what happened was once the FCA had decided upon the policies that it thought would be uh, useful representations of the sample terms and the insurers had agreed to take part in this litigation, a framework agreement was drawn up, a kind of contract that you might expect in an arbitration almost, for how this was going to be conducted. A timetable, a CPR-style timetable for this hearing. It was agreed, for example, that that pleadings would be served by certain dates in June, that there would be a case management conference, that there would be a timetable to trial. This was, of course, all to be done on an expedited basis. There was an overriding objective and a mutual objective set out in that framework agreement. And importantly, there was both a provision as to appeals being permissible, as to legal representation being able to be coordinated, and perhaps most importantly of all, that each party would pay its own costs. So this was costs-free litigation. And so effectively insurers wanted, many insurers wanted to take part in it, consented to take part in it, because they wanted certainty. Uh, The upshot of this were that there were eight different insurers um, that took part, and each of them had 
different numbers of policies. So that in total, the court were actually considering 21 policies in the three categories of case that James mentioned, disease wordings, prevention of access wordings, and hybrid wordings. So, so that was the, the, the overall mechanism recorded in the framework agreement at, at the end of May 2020. And as I say, the objective there, the objective of that framework agreement was to achieve the maximum clarity possible for the maximum number of policyholders mainly, uh, although not entirely, small and medium enterprises and for their insurers, uh, consistent with the need for expedition and proportionality. This was uh, all recorded, signed and agreed upon and approved by the court in the first case management conference in this matter in June. And it was also agreed at that point that it would be heard at first instance in the commercial court, but by a Court of Appeal judge, Lord Justice Flo, and Mr Justice Butcher. So unusual there that the first instance hearing was two judges uh, rather than the usual one. Thank you, Jeremy. That It certainly is a unique uh, procedural situation. That first instance uh, court effectively replicates a divisional court with a Court of Appeal judge and a first instance judge. What happened at first instance, if you can summarise, please? Well, this was the first case, as I said, decided under the financialist test case scheme. And uh, the two judges effectively found in favour of policyholders on most points, finding that they were covered for losses resulting from the impact of the pandemic. They looked at policies that, as I've said, were chosen to be part of this test case and gave their judgment by reference to the categories of policies that we've outlined. So disease clauses, prevention of access clauses and hybrid clauses. And I'll just say a couple of words about what they found uh, in respect of each type of clause before looking later on at what the Supreme Court did. So in relation to the disease clauses, where we're dealing with clauses uh, covering um terms such as following any occurrence of a notifiable disease within 25 miles of the business premises or or another radius, the court found that disease clauses did provide coverage to policyholders for business interruption caused by a COVID-19, a notifiable disease within a specific radius. Insurers had said that losses needed to be caused by a local outbreak, i.e. within the radius, and so coronavirus wasn't covered where it was effectively a national or international cause, rather than a specific cause within the radius. But the FCA's analysis, that it was enough as a matter of construction, that there had been an outbreak within the radius, was preferred. The purpose of the radius, the court found, was essentially to ensure that diseases with no local impact could not result in coverage. On prevention of access clauses, which was actually the one that my client Arch was particularly interested in, and the court held that there was a distinction to be drawn by between prevention and hindrance. So the difference there being impossibility of access as opposed to just making access more difficult. And there was quite a lot of discussion about examples of restaurants. We're all familiar with the idea of whether a restaurant has been shut down, but may may still actually be able to uh, carry out a fully functioning takeaway business. The question there 
has access been prevented? Well, insurers argued successfully that prevention of access had not occurred where there remained access for a part of the insured business, such as providing takeaways, that was not a de minimis part of the business already. So where you could meaningfully carry on. Now, that wasn't the approach of the Supreme Court, I should add. But at that point, there was a, a victory of sorts on that point. Trends clauses were also considered, um, and this is a very important feature of the overall case. Trends clauses, I should just say at the outset, because it may, might come up a few times in our discussion, are those clauses in business interruption policies that allow for an adjustment of the indemnity to effectively be as accurate as possible. It's a formula for making that indemnity effectively work. So, for example, it means you take into account trends and circumstances affecting the business uh, before the insured peril. So, for example, a Michelin-starred restaurant that was about to lose its head chef anyway would have been suffering losses, and those need to be taken into account in the adjustment. Uh, so th they, they were considered. Um, insurers argued that even if there had been no outbreak within the radius or regulations requiring closure, the businesses in question would still have suffered losses. Uh, because of the general lack of consumer confidence and other lockdown measures, such as the stay-at-home uh, regulations that we'll all be familiar with. And, and that the operation of the insured peril had to be at least a but-for cause of the losses. But the um, divisional court held that the insured perils were, as a matter of construction, composite in nature, meaning that as a matter of construction of the policies and what the insured perils were, they they... They didn't just include, for example, prevention of access. They also included prevention of access because of government advice due to the pandemic. And so you effectively had the whole pandemic rolled into the insured peril. And therefore, it would be contrary to principle if as part of the construction of the trends clauses, you could limit losses by reference to other aspects of the pandemic. So uh, the, the key case on causation, and again, we'll come back to this, that they again considered was Orient Express Hotels in Generali. I won't go into detail in that now, but um, suffice it to say that was the case that, um, that held that the Orient Express Hotel in New Orleans could only recover for business interruption losses from the hurricane there, um, which it could show would not have arisen had the damage to the hotel not occurred, i.e. there's a but-for test. Had the insured peril not occurred, it would have been an undamaged hotel in a damaged city and its takings would have been consequently lower or non-existent. But at first instance, Lord Justice Flo, Mr Justice Butcher held that was distinguishable or wrongly decided. And we'll see what happens next in the Supreme Court, but it's particularly interesting because, of course, that case was decided by Mr Justice Hamlin and it was an appeal from an arbitration chaired by George Leggett QC. And of course, Lord Leggett and Lord Hamlin are both now in the Supreme Court. So that that is a very potted summary of what happened at first instance. I think the main point to take away is probably the construction-focused analysis on composite perils, the fact that you, you, you don't strip out of the counterfactual, the pandemic, and for the purposes of trends clauses, you can't take into account other aspects of the pandemic because effectively the insured perils were composite. It wasn't just a prevention of access, it was a prevention of access due to government regulations, due to a pandemic, due to coronavirus.
Well, thanks for that summary, Jeremy, and well done, because that first instance judgment ran to, I think, 165 pages, not easy to summarise. It's probably fair to say that pretty much everyone appealed everything on a leapfrog appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, James, can you help us with what the main issues were in the hearing before the Supreme Court? As you say, Stephen, pretty much everything was appealed. So the issues before the Supreme Court were essentially the same as those considered at first instance. But they can be grouped into what you might call insurance-specific issues, really only of interest to those of us who practice insurance law. And one other issue, which is potentially of far wider significance. Now, the insurance-specific issues were, first, how the various types of cover responded to the losses caused by the pandemic, that is, the disease clauses, the prevention of access clauses, and the hybrid clauses that we've already mentioned. And second, how did the trends clause operate when it came to assessing loss? Now, the other issue I refer to, the potentially more interesting one, is causation. Now, that's obviously something that the courts have struggled with for years, but it was particularly acute in this case for two reasons. First, the insurers could legitimately argue that the policyholders would have suffered the same or similar business interruption losses even if the insured risk or peril had not occurred. Consequently, the claim should fail, because it could not be said that the loss was caused by the insured peril. The second and rather particular reason why uh, the causation issue was acute was that the insurers were relying on the decision of the commercial court in Orient Express Hotels. Uh, That was an appeal from an arbitration award Now, one of the Supreme Court justices had been one of the arbitrators in that matter, and another had been the judge, and both had found in favour of the insurers on the causation issue. James, what's interesting is that the Supreme Court um, confirmed in a rather nice passage, it has to be said, where Lord Leggett and Lord Hamlin effectively said, Mayor Culper, we we got it wrong, and we're not ashamed to accept that, looking back on it. Um, that Orient Express should be overruled. Um, But on the particular ground that the but-for test um, should not be applied to cases where you have concurrent but independent causes of loss resulting from effectively um, the same fortuitous events such as the pandemic. So it felt that where there's a case where you have a peril that's insured and a peril that's not insured, but they're both operating at the same time, because of the same underlying um, uh, uh, pandemic, then as long as you don't have an exclusion of the uninsured peril, you, so it's just uninsured, it's not it's not specifically included, then the policy will respond. So as long as the uninsured peril was not actually excluded, then the policy responds. And effectively, therefore, when you look at Orient Express, um, what you find is that the business interruption losses were concurrently uh, caused by a damage to the hotel and damage to the city. And because both were uh, from the hurricanes, um, there should have been recovery. So that was the, the, the analysis in Orient Express. I don't think Orient Express was necessarily quite such a big, huge part of this case as perhaps we all expected it to be. But that particular principle of causation is... And I know you're going to say much more about this in a minute, James, is the key to understanding this case, I think, isn't it?
So it's important to keep the questions of causation separate from pure construction. Not always easy, but I think for our purposes, it's important that we do. Uh, James, can you tell us a bit more about the Supreme Court's approach to causation issues? Well, in the judgment, you'll find an extensive review of the law in relation to causation. The focus was obviously very much on insurance cases, but I have little doubt that we'll find the judgment cited in other contexts in the future. So the court considered a number of tests and problem areas under a series of headings. So as you work through the judgment, you can find a review of the cases uh, under various headings such as proximate cause test, and then there's concurrent causes, and the but-for test is considered. The list goes on, and any summary will not really do it proper justice. But ultimately, the court decided first that although it could not be said that any individual case of illness resulting from COVID-19 on its own caused the UK government to introduce restrictions, which led directly to business interruption. The government measures were taken in response to information about all of the cases in the country as a whole. So as a result, it could properly be said that all of the cases were equal causes of the imposition of the national measures. Secondly, Lord Leggett and Lord Hamblin, in common with the other law lords, both held that the Orient Express case was wrongly decided and should be overruled. Or as they put it, they surrendered their former views to a better considered position. Thirdly, it did not matter that the losses would have been suffered in any event, obviously absent uh, an applicable exclusion. So taking a, a policy containing a disease clause as an example, it did not matter that there were COVID cases outside the specified radius or that the restrictions would have been imposed irrespective of whether or not there was a case within the radius. So long as there was at least one case within the radius, there was cover under the policy. Now, in relation to the policies containing disease clauses, the conclusion was that on the proper interpretation of the disease clauses, in order to show that loss from interruption of the insured's business was proximately caused by one or more occurrences of illness resulting from COVID-19, it was sufficient to prove that the interruption was a result of government action taken in response to cases of disease which included at least one case of COVID-19 within the geographical area covered by the clause. James, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think there's a really nice bit in the judgment uh, if you're looking for one paragraph to sort of leap on in paragraph 212 of the judgment, the, the analysis um, that the, the justices alight on is, is just very pithily summarised, where they say each of the individual cases of illness resulting from COVID-19, which had occurred by the date of any action, was a separate and equally effective cause of that action and the public response to it. Our conclusion doesn't depend on the particular terminology used in the clause to describe the required causal connection between the loss and the insured peril and applies equally whether the term uses following or some other formula. It's a conclusion about the legal effect of the insurance contracts as they apply to the facts of this case. So they move away from this construction-based approach and a very heavy emphasis on the construction that we saw at first instance towards a a much more causation-based analysis where those 
and it's a really interesting idea that every single individual instances of COVID is a separate and equally effective cause of the wider action. We heard a lot in the in the in the hearings about different analogies to explain this, you know, different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, the, 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 a part of the whole interdependence of every single uh, case of COVID-19. And that really crystallises it there. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, and in relation to the policies containing prevention of access clauses, uh, the conclusion was similar. What the court held was that these indemnified the policyholder against the risk of all the elements of the insured peril acting in causal combination to cause the business interruption loss. But importantly, they did so, so they provided this cover, regardless of whether the loss was concurrently caused by other uninsured consequences of COVID-19. So in summary, what you find here is a clear rejection of the but-for test for causation. That's absolutely right. And that that's the thread. That causation thread runs through the court's analysis of all the clauses, really. So to just on prevention of access and hybrid clauses, um, the Supreme Court actually gave further guidance on how to construe them, though, as to what prevention of access really means. It's quite important, um, this point. They held that an inability uh, rather than hindrance of use needs to be established in relation to the words inability to use. But uh, it held that that would be satisfied, as would prevention of access, where a policyholder is unable to use or access part of the premises, i.e. the premises for a discrete or particular business activity. So, for example, and this is a distinction from um, the first instance judgment, The Supreme Court holds that if a department store with an in-store pharmacy is required to close all of the store barring the pharmacy, then there's an inability to use part of the premises. And by a similar token, there's prevention of access where there's a partial prevention of access, such as where um, the prevention is to access part of the business, like where a a bookshop loses its walk-in customer business but can still operate mail order. The Supreme Court said they agreed with uh, my client and and our submissions that prevention means stopping something from happening or making an intended act impossible, and it's different from mere hindrance. But uh, just going back to the takeaway uh, service, the, the restaurant which offers a takeaway service, the Supreme Court actually rejected the idea that there was no prevention of access or no inability to use the premises where the takeaway service continued, phrase it uses, the more realistic view is that there is prevention of access to an inability to use a discrete part of the premises, namely the dining area of the restaurant, and prevention of access to an inability to use the premises for the discrete business activity of providing a dining in service. So, uh, there we have it. There's a um, a shift there in how the court look at uh, prevention of access. And I think that might be quite important too. Of course, insurers would want to emphasise that there is only cover for the loss which such prevention of access has caused. Well, thank you both for that very insightful discussion of what is quite a complex case. I don't think Uh, that any of the judges involved in this uh, litigation could be described as the enemies of the people. This was episode eight uh, out of sequence of the podcast series 10 in 10. That concludes this podcast series. 
we hope to be back with other podcasts in the future, perhaps even mini-series or one-offs. I've been your host for this series. My name is Stephen Hausman. I'd like to thank Lucy Smith for all her assistance in the production of this podcast series. Goodbye. Goodbye.